Matthew 6, I'm going to read verses 9 to 13. Jesus speaking says, Pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Let's pray that prayer we pray. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. Amen. I've missed being up here. It's been a couple weeks. Many of you are aware of this. I am a creature of habit, mostly bad habits, I'm afraid, but... uh, Ken's been learning that up close and personal while we were down at General Assembly. He knows I stay up too late and I smoke cigars and I eat too much barbecue and pretty much anything else. Um, One of my better habits is preaching weekly. This is almost uh, therapeutic for me, so uh, I have missed this and I've missed you all. Uh, And I've had a lot on my mind since GA, so I hope you'll bear with me. Uh, You may have noticed uh, that I just read a passage that I already preached on. I want you to know that I know that. <laughs> I'm not that forgetful. I reread the Lord's Prayer because I think that there's more that could and should be said about it. And of course, I acknowledged that three weeks ago, and I said that I wanted to keep that message short because Jesus' message was short, right? Uh, but I've been mulling over the concept of the kingdom for the last couple of weeks. And... Um, the kingdom of heaven that Jesus talks so much about throughout the Gospels, and I wanted to actually focus primarily on verse 10 today. And that's it, uh, the question of this coming kingdom. Jesus commands us to pray about the kingdom of God. And as I mentioned in my last sermon, it's perhaps better to read not so much an imperative here, like, Lord, make it come, but like, may it be. It's like you're, you're inviting it, you're... you're May your kingdom come, and may your will be done. You're cheering on God's handiwork in building the kingdom. But what is this kingdom? What does it look like? You can't possibly answer that question in just one sermon, really. I can't do this completely today. Jesus mentions the kingdom about a hundred times in the New Testament. Uh, most of his parables, it seems, revolve around the kingdom. He gives us many ways of thinking about the kingdom, and yet there remains some mystery about it. He's almost cryptic about it at times. Uh, And when the disciples ask him concrete questions about the kingdom, he tells parables, some of which are kind of confusing. And theologians still dispute the meaning of some of them, but I want us to see several things and ask several questions about the kingdom, because I think it's probably the hardest part of this prayer in some ways to understand or to accept, because I don't think it's a mistake that he tethers it to the prayer concerning God's will, that the Father's will be done. The other clauses within this prayer, they're okay with us and they kind of make sense. We like God to be our Father, even though we forget it sometimes. Uh, We're okay with his name being hallowed, right? And we all like our daily bread, don't we? Right? And we all want forgiveness, and we all want to be delivered from evil, right? But to desire God's kingdom to come 
is kind of a trickier question because it kind of depends on what it is, doesn't it? It's the same dilemma if your country was invaded, right? If there's a new world order coming in. I mean, is Ukraine happy to have a new kingdom arrive in the form of Putin's Russia? Like, I don't think so. How does Hong Kong feel about the Chinese Communist Party? Like, I don't think there's a lot of warm fuzzies there. They're not rah-rahing that. So if there is a new world order happening, we want to know what this means for us, and it might not necessarily be what we're looking for. I think that's why Jesus follows this prayer with that prayer about God's will being done, because the kingdom that is coming and our will are not necessarily aligned all the time. So I think it's fitting that these two clauses are found in the same verse. I think it's the hardest part of the prayer. If we want to pray for the kingdom and mean it, we need to reflect on it more than we typically do and maybe do some wrestling over it. And again, I think it's worth doing because the kingdom of heaven is one of Jesus' absolute favorite topics. might be the favorite topic. He talks about it constantly, right? Even after the resurrection, we read in Acts 1 that Jesus spent 40 days with the disciples talking about the kingdom. And yet somehow at the end of those 40 days, the disciples are still clueless and asking all the wrong questions, right? The disciples wrestled over kingdom questions plenty of times, and they were often confused, and maybe we are too. So today, I want to do several things. I want to look at several characteristics of the kingdom that Jesus proclaims, and I want us to consider what it means to pray that the kingdom would come And then I want us to ask ourselves if we really want that. And if we do, what price are we willing to pay for it? And what role are we willing to play? What are some characteristics of the kingdom that we should have in mind? And again, I'm not going to try to cover all the kingdom teachings and parables today. I'm not that ambitious or cruel. But I want to look at some broad themes, particularly as I was reflecting on Matthew's gospel, some general characteristics of the kingdom that are worth remembering. First off, we are told that the kingdom is good news. Jesus says so almost from the very start in Matthew 4. As soon as he begins his earthly ministry, we are told that his ministry consisted of proclaiming the good news of the kingdom. In Matthew 9.35, we read that Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness. So the kingdom is a good thing, first and foremost. But along with being good, we're also told that the kingdom is exclusive, that there are those who are inside and there are those who are outside. And you want to be in the first group. That means that the kingdom is good news for some, but bad news for others. It's good news only if you enter it, if you're a citizen of it. It's therefore assumed that you would desire to enter it. The Sermon on the Mount has been full of warnings about how to enter it and what would prevent you from entering it. But the kingdom is also something that grows. Many of the parables of the kingdom are about how it grows. The mustard seed, the parable of the sower. Jesus, in another one, likens it to yeast expanding in dough. Another time he likens it to a net catching all kinds of fish. So it's assumed that the kingdom will grow. It's part of its nature. That's the character of the kingdom. It grows. Jesus also paints the kingdom as great. It's a picture of plenty. It's a picture picture of bounteous riches. 
He likens it to a wedding banquet. It's a place where the poor are rich and a place where children, the least among us, are honored. The kingdom, if you like, has a large GDP. It's not a poor, backward country and no petty dukedom. Some of you fellow geography nerds and worldal experts know that the world's smallest nation, apart from the Vatican, is Nauru, which is a small island nation in the Pacific. This is a country that can't defend itself and depends on the charity of other nations to get by financially. The number one uh, financial thing they have going for them economically is uh, they house an Australian immigration detention center. That's it. The kingdom of heaven isn't like that. It has riches overflowing, endless resources. It's far more wealthy even than the United States. It's a party. It's abundant. It's worth the price of admission. In short, the kingdom is great. But the kingdom also has what theologians call an already and not yet character. It's already here. It's close, and we can kind of see it, right? But in another sense, it's something that hasn't come to full fruition. Theologians, at least at Westminster, like to say that it's been inaugurated but not yet consummated. And you can see that throughout the New Testament because we're repeatedly told that the kingdom is near. Everywhere Jesus goes, he tells people that the kingdom is imminent. It's upon us. It has come near, he says. That was John the Baptist's message, and Jesus echoes it in chapter 4. It's actually the first words out of his mouth in his earthly ministry. But it's equally clear that in some sense, the kingdom is also a future reality. Jesus will make references to what it will one day be like. In Matthew 8, he says that we will one day sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom. That's obviously future. And the fact that Jesus tells us to pray for the kingdom to come implies that it has not yet fully come. There is a sense in that the kingdom is not yet fully arrived. So the kingdom is good, it is growing, it is great, and it is already, and it is not yet. That last item, the already not yet, is one I'd like to press into a little bit because the fact that the kingdom is already and not yet has some practical implications for us because I think there's a danger present if we fail to hold the two things in tension. If we treat the kingdom as entirely future, we kind of gut the gospel of its power, don't we? We make every promise of peace with God into something kind of futuristic, and all of our hopes are reserved for later on in eternity. And I think it's a very pessimistic take on things. I think it can lead to legalism. I think in church history it's led to Gnosticism, where, where Christians kind of treat everything in the world, all things earthly, as inherently evil and irredeemable and to be avoided. And, and the danger of this thinking is that if our focus is entirely future, we will inevitably be drawn into a holy huddle, hiding out here, doing our Christian thing, and avoiding the culture around us as much as we can. On the other hand, if we think of the kingdom entirely in terms of the present, we end up with a form of utopianism. And if I'm honest, I, I think that's the danger of post-millennialism. There's a sort of triumphalism that accompanies that sort of eschatology. It's been called an eschatology of victory by some. It's also inevitably overly political. 
Uh, Not that the church should ignore politics, but it is certainly not to be obsessive about it. To think of kingdom goals in political terms is not the way it's supposed to be. I have known liberal post-mill preachers who cannot stop talking about social justice and racial justice and environmental justice and every other kind of justice at the expense of the actual gospel. And you can't help but get the impression that they believe we can bring about the kingdom by just a few more government programs and better laws. Again, a form of utopianism. If we fix the institutions, we can achieve a little bit of heaven on earth. But I've also known some conservative post-mill preachers who have a conservative utopian vision. I know theonomy still has its adherents, but it strikes me as sort of a conservative utopianism. And conservative utopians obviously have different priorities than, than liberal utopians, but it has the same fatal flaw that it places its hope in fixing the culture and in the institutions. It leads to an endless fixation on the culture wars and things going on around us. Some theologians have called this an overrealized eschatology, meaning in plain English that we expect too much in the here and now. And the danger, I think, is that this can lead to combativeness and arrogance and ultimately despair. Because when you look around you, it's kind of hard to convince yourself that Team Kingdom is winning most of the time. And how every step forward seems to be accompanied by a step or two back, right? The culture is increasingly hostile to the Christian faith. And if we're not winning, if the kingdom is not coming in the way that we expect, then we become disillusioned and angry. And in fact, it leads us right back in the other extreme of placing the kingdom in the distant future, and we become protectionists and a holy huddle of the frozen chosen. So it is important to remember that the kingdom has an already not yet dimension. It's already here. It is good and great and growing, but it is not yet consummated. That's not pessimism. It's what Jesus told us to expect. He says, take up your cross and follow me. We're in a state of perpetual spiritual war. We are promised scars in this battle, and yet the victory is sure. When Jesus said on the cross, it is finished, he's not just whistling Dixie, right? The victory is so certain that it brings real freedom to believers in the here and now. But the total victory over the world and residual sin and death belongs to the future when Jesus comes in glory. Jesus paints a picture of the kingdom that grows and thrives and conquers, but it does so independently, simultaneously and with no help or hindrance from the earthly kingdoms. The already not yet needs to be understood, and I think it might be best illustrated in another parable Jesus tells in Matthew 13, a little later on, the parable of the wheat and tares. It says in Matthew 13, 24, he says, He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field, but while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also, and the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? He said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servant said to him, Then do you want us to go and gather them? And he said, No, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest, and at harvest time I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. So kingdom growth and the enemy's growth happen simultaneously, side by side, even within the kingdom, in the church. There remains impurity and corruption. Jesus knows this and is pleased to wait until the judgment to sort things out. 
It doesn't mean he's not in control. It just means he's patient, or at least more patient than us. This is a small slice of what the kingdom looks like. And if this kingdom, it's this kingdom that Jesus tells us to pray for, we say, may it come, and we do so acknowledging that it is coming, and it will come, and that is a good thing. And a kingdom implies the existence of a king, does it not? And so by praying your kingdom come, you're essentially declaring, long live the king, long live King Jesus. Even if his victory is still in progress, you are welcoming the king who has come to conquer and will. But have we considered what it means to pray for the coming of the kingdom? There's a future kingdom, fully consummated, and we look forward to glory, right? And insofar as the kingdom's already come, that's a good thing too. But the status quo, where are we at now? Do we know what we're asking for when we pray that the kingdom would continue making advances in the here and now? Have we counted the cost of what that means? I don't know that we have. I said earlier, it's not a mistake that Jesus pairs this particular prayer with the prayer about the Father's will being done. I think he ties these together because our will and his are not exactly aligned. And I would go so far as to say that for many of us, the kingdom is not in practice a priority. Or we may be okay with the kingdom coming so long as it comes at no cost to us. See, this is a hard thing to pray for, isn't it? Precisely because we're not really sure what it might mean. If a new king is coming to town, we don't necessarily welcome the change because a new king means that all the old kingdoms, all of them, must vanish. Not just the current American culture, every petty little kingdom that you have built for yourself. A new kingdom comes at a cost. Even John Lennon knew that. In his song, Revolution, when he was with the Beatles, you know that a revolution, you have to count the cost. He says, well, you know, you, you say you want a revolution. Well, you know, we all want to change the world. You say you got a real solution. Well, you know, we'd all like to see the plan. You say you'll change the Constitution. You know, we'd all love to change your head. When you talk about destruction, don't you know you can count me out? Don't you know it's going to be all right? He's making an argument for the status quo, Right? Everyone wants a revolution, but they don't always consider the result on the other side of that revolution. That's how the Soviets ended up where they did, right? And the coming of the kingdom is nothing short of a revolution. The problem for us is that Jesus is not coming just to confront the godless pagans of the world. He's coming for you. Kingdom growth comes at the expense of our little mini-empires and kingdoms. If his kingdom comes, it will necessarily mean your kingdom will have to go. You will have to lay your crown at his feet. The Westminster Shorter Catechism has an interesting way of putting this doctrine. In question number 26, it says, How doth Christ execute the office of a king? Christ executeth the office of a king in subduing us to himself, in ruling and defending us, and in restraining and conquering all his and our enemies. Most of that sounds fine, but did you catch the first part? He exercises the office of king first and foremost by subduing us. 
When his kingdom comes, the first battleground is us. He conquered sin and death on the cross. He will conquer the world at the end, but his kingdom coming in the here and now, in part, comes by his conquering us. When you cheer the coming of the kingdom, you are cheering your own defeat. Now, your defeat in this case is not bad news. Jesus is not like Vladimir Putin. He's a generous king and a magnanimous conqueror, and you're not exactly the good guy in the story. He has every intention of being glorified in you. He may break you, but he'll put you back together again, even if all his horses and all of his men cannot. But we fool ourselves, I think, if we think that this is all going to be painless and easy. I don't think we consider how much we've invested in our kingdoms. Sometimes we even build kingdoms while convincing ourselves that we're doing it in the name of the Father's kingdom. We build sub-kingdoms. But in reality, a lot of it's just a vanity project to make us look and feel good. The church is full of ministries that are designed to appeal to us and to our egos. Even good ministries can become kingdoms of self and idolatrous fixations. Because we make them about us. And we make them about our preferences and our tastes and our comforts. It's very easy to slip into the idea that the kingdom is about us. And that is why we often get angry about things at church when they don't go our way. Now allow me to use myself as an example. I realize that we are a modestly sized PCA church. We average maybe 40 to 45 on a Sunday, right? Except holidays. And I realize I'm no Jim Boyce and this ain't exactly 10th. But we have an online presence. We have a nice website when we remember to pay the bill. It was down this week, I know. Thank you, Reverend Green, for getting that back up and running. We have a Facebook page, too. Uh, I have wasted more than a little time digging for funny memes, not just to hang up in the bathrooms here, but to share about upcoming events on the Facebook page, right? And we have far more Facebook likes than we have church members. We're up to like 160 or something like that. And I really like watching the numbers slowly grow. I check on it. See, my kingdom is expanding. We also have a sermon audio account. And I honestly believe that that's a good thing. I, I, you know, we know that God uses the foolishness of preaching to disciple believers and to reach the hearts of unbelievers. So the sermon audio account is a good idea, and I think it's working. We have an online audience that reaches around the world. We've been heard in just about every state in nearly 50 countries, and I know this because they send me monthly stats. But in my own sinful heart, I know that I have made that an idol, I think of that sermon archive as a testament to all the hard work that I have done for the kingdom of God, as a monument to me. And the biggest proof of this came several weeks ago when Jed wasn't here and the audio wasn't working, and so he texted me midweek to say that we had lost the sermon. And I didn't respond, but I was livid. 
I was fuming mad. I wanted the throttle, Jed. Doesn't he know what these recordings mean? Doesn't he realize that we're doing kingdom work here? People count on me, and he's making me look bad. I was angry the entire time that I recorded the replacement video in the park. Now tell me something. Whose kingdom am I really worried about? How can God's kingdom survive a missing video in my online catalog? I'm sorry that Jed's in North Carolina. I owe him an apology. I considered telling him not to post this one at all. If there was any justice in it, he would just skip it. But even that would feel like a vanity project. God help me. But I imagine I'm not the only one here who thinks that the kingdom and this church exists largely for me and my glory. And that attitude is toxic to ministry. What kingdoms are you building for yourself? What eats up all of your time? What are you most protective of? I just want you to see how easily this becomes a controlling force for us, even good things. And that's why Jesus tells us, when praying for his Father's kingdom, that we also need to pray that the Father's will be done. That our will, our passions, and our kingdoms, by default, must diminish so that his kingdom will grow. Now, all of this has been stirring in my heart really since Ken and I were in Birmingham for General Assembly because for four days in Birmingham, I was confronted by what God is doing to build his kingdom throughout the PCA and all over this country and all over the world. Some of it was good stuff. Other stuff was not so good stuff. But the good stuff made me want a piece of the action and the bad stuff made me want to prepare for battle. We heard a report on abuse in the church that was chilling. It's more widespread than we want to acknowledge, and it's going to require vigilance and battle readiness to tackle it in a better way than we have. We heard from our stated clerk that this is the first year on record that the PCA has shrunk. Our membership is down nearly 2%, but that almost sounds like good news compared to groups like the Southern Baptists, which are down about 20%. Other faithful denominations are also suffering, which means that broad swaths of the country are not being reached for Christ in the way they could be. But we also spend time with a missionary who helps run a reformed seminary in Ukraine. You can imagine what they're dealing with. We talked with another group that's running seminaries in Uganda. We met a Nigerian man who is a seminary student in the U.S. planning to take the Reformed faith back to his home country, the most populous country in Africa, and yet where there is no Reformed presence at all. He says the two top exports that they get from the United States are the prosperity gospel and abortion. Available even in the small, dirty villages. We heard about urban missions and what MA is doing across the South. We heard about a church that is ministering to Afghan refugees. One church in Pennsylvania, I think Ivy's church it was, uh, is a hub for reaching immigrants with the gospel. They have an African service now in the evenings. Wonderful. And that's just in the PCA. 
And it made me think about other ministries and needs that are out there. John told us yesterday about Pam going back to the Ukraine, and we have all these other missionaries we support. I thought of a guy I know who's running a successful reform seminary in the Dominican Republic. And then I think locally, I thought about CCEF. We support them and have used them at times, but I've wished that such a counseling service was available right in Allentown so people didn't need to drive an hour to get to it. I think of Harvest USA and their work and how we could use a ministry like that active in the Lehigh Valley promoting sexual faithfulness. And in the midst of all these other thoughts throughout GA, as we were packing our bags to go home, we heard about the Supreme Court decision overturning Roe v. Wade, and I thought about how Bright Hope needs our support now more than ever. I thought all of these things, and I wanted to have a part of it. I wanted to go to war over these things. I wanted to know, what does LVPC have to do with all of this? What is our role? How can we be involved? What are we going to do to meet these needs? And I felt convicted that we as a church, and I as your pastor, have been happily treading water. I don't think we're going to be much use if my vision of the kingdom is limited to my sermon archive and increasing traffic on the Facebook page. I've gotten overly comfortable and lazy. The mission has to be bigger than that. My friend John Bonomo said two weeks ago that God was life for the mission, you remember, but his idea of mission must be a lot bigger than ours. Now, I want to clarify in the midst of this that God doesn't need us to build his kingdom. We couldn't do it all anyway, I know that. We're just one church and we're finite. And not even Jesus and his humanity tried to do everything. We're limited by time and space. That's kind of how God designed us, right? But like everything else in the Lord's Prayer, God doesn't need us in order to get things done. However, he graciously invites us to have a role in it. Take, for instance, the prayer for daily bread. We do pray for our daily bread, right? Does that mean we stop working to earn money? We still buy ingredients, we pay the gas bill for the oven, we make the meal. That is a gift. Even washing the dishes is a privilege, kids. God is giving you the privilege of participating in what is ultimately his work. Likewise, his kingdom will come whether we do anything or not. We get to participate, not because he needs us, but for the same reason you let your small children help with some project around the house. How helpful can a five-year-old be with mowing the lawn? I can attest to this. We had a, a, a Craftsman electric lawnmower that we used to do our backyard with, and when I was just a little kid, uh, my dad would go out to mow the lawn, and we had also, along with the, the Craftsman, a red plastic lawnmower with wheels that was just a hollow shell that I used to get to push with him. I got to go do the lawn with dad, right? And I pushed right behind him, and he told me to get the spots that he missed, right? <laughs> What did I contribute to the mission of mowing the lawn? Would the lawn get mowed without me? Think so. Why did Dad let me do that? Because he loved me. 
And you know what I got out of it? I got to be close to dad. And I got to watch him working. Likewise, your heavenly father lets you play a role because he loves you. We participate in every other clause in this prayer. We get to hallow his name. We get to do that. We get to make and eat bread and wash dishes. We get to forgive our debtors. Sometimes we even flee temptation. But we also have the privilege of participating in bringing the kingdom. He is pleased to use us in the kingdom building project. Not because he needs your help, but because he loves you. Now, what does that mean for LVPC in Allentown? Well, we are the sole representatives of the PCA and of Reformed teaching, as far as I know, within the city limits of Allentown. Between Allentown and Bethlehem, we're it. This city is 120,000 strong. If you include Bethlehem, that's what, another 80,000 or so? So you got like 200,000 between these city limits alone? That's just the city limits. And we are a church about 45 strong on a Sunday, and I still struggle to tell people when they ask where we even are. We are right here, and yet so much of our city is unreached. So many neighborhoods and demographics and class groups. So what I'm asking is, do we want the kingdom to come here in Allentown? And what are we willing to do to see that happen? Many of us aren't even willing to invite our friends and neighbors to church. I failed to get any of my neighbors out for breakfast yesterday because I didn't press hard enough. Should that really be a hard sell? Free breakfast sandwiches? And I couldn't do it. Our denomination is historically very good at reaching white-collar professionals in the suburbs. We have faithful churches to the west and south of here. Some do well reaching young urban professionals, too. Tim Keller blazed that trail, right? But we are sitting in a blue-collar city which is the beginning of what is essentially a reformed wasteland, because if you stretch north into the Poconos and into the Slate Belt, we are the last PCA church before Scranton. That's not to say the gospel is absent entirely, but it is a desert of reformed teaching. And by that I mean the pure gospel of sovereign grace, that our God is sovereignly choosing and calling people, depraved sinners, to himself and building his church, not through programs and activism, but through the foolish message of Christ crucified. Don't we believe that? Don't we want to walk behind our Father and watch him do his work? This city needs Jesus. Our northern suburbs need Jesus. The Poconos and the Slate Belt need Jesus. And while we may not have much, we have Jesus. And he's worth sharing. 
And I may not be post-mill, but I do believe the kingdom will come, and I believe it has come and is coming and will come. My purpose today is not to drive us to despair, nor do I want us to sit around envying what every other church is doing. And I don't want us to sit around pining for the glory days either. That is not, this is not a call for self-pity. I want us to be excited because like every other petition in the Lord's Prayer, we are praying for a fait accompli. Our Father is not sitting around judging us for not doing enough. And he's not panicking, waiting for us to make things happen. He's inviting us to walk behind him and watch him work. So the kingdom is coming. Jesus promised it would. So you can praise him for what he is already doing. And let's ask him how we at LVPC can be a part of it here in this city, in the here and now. Because the fields are white for the harvest and Jesus is building his church. And we can be a part of it. Praise God. Let's pray. Gracious God and Father, we are so thankful for your word. We're thankful for Jesus' teaching, particularly that he teaches us to pray, Lord, because what could be more of a privilege and a treat than to talk to you And he tells us to come to you and call you Father on the most intimate of terms and to lay our hearts bare before you. Lord, I believe we do have a heart to reach this city, but not the knowledge necessarily of how or the courage or much of a game plan, Lord. But Lord, we want to be willing to be used by you. We do pray that you would use us as individuals. Lord, use us as a church to reach people for Christ in the place that you have put us. This city, this region needs you desperately. We have what they need. We thank you that we have him. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Please stand and join me in singing the doxology. Praise God from whom all blessings.